The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. This week I'm asking the question, why does most modern Christian art make us cringe or just yawn? And is there anything we can do to rescue it so that it once again stimulates the theological imagination? My guest this week is ideally qualified to answer that question. She's Dr. Elizabeth Lev, one of the world's foremost historians of Christian art and one of the most charismatic. And I don't use that word lightly. Just check out her exhilarating TED talk on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which you can find on YouTube. Liz, who's a Catholic academic and tour guide based in Rome, has written about how Christian art saved the faith, which it did again and again by stimulating the theological imaginations of people in times of crisis. I was lucky enough three years ago to join a guided tour of the Forum and the Colosseum, led by Liz, in which she explained that Christian architecture and the Christian aesthetic began by rejecting the mystical darkness of the pagan religions flourishing in Rome and embraced instead the light-filled secular model of the basilica, where the Roman magistrate issued his judgments. And this aesthetic of light and colour became one of the glories of Christendom, exemplified, of course, in the great cathedrals, but also so many parish churches. The best Christian art over the centuries addressed people's hopes and fears, as Les has written in eras of plague, depictions of the Last Judgment struck home with terrifying relevance. During the explosion of new artistic techniques during the Renaissance, Christian artists used every new technique to revivify and expand the scope of Christian art. But from then on, you could argue it was all downhill, as Christian art, now of course reflecting a fractured Christendom, became increasingly dependent on secular artistic inspiration and copied it. There was a Gothic revival, it's true, not uniformly successful, and in the mid-20th century, modernism did inspire a handful of remarkable Christian churches, but many, many more bad ones. And I think what we see today is a sort of timid, watered-down, modernist aesthetic flavoured sometimes with the cod medieval. And in its attempt to become accessible, it's become infantile as well. And I'm not just talking about art and architecture. For example, look at the primary school graphics and font adopted by the Vatican's new ludicrous synod on synodality consultation process. There's so much that's cringeworthy out there. Liz Lev, it's a great thrill to have you on the podcast. And I wanted to ask you what went wrong, given that Christian art had such a unique ability to stimulate people's imaginations and therefore nurture their faith. 
talk about coming out with the gloves off. That's quite an opening. And while, yes, there are certainly plenty of examples of really truly unappealing art in churches, I, I think it really follows a trend. Uh, we see, we hear unappealing music. We see unappealing architecture. There are plenty of unappealing liturgies. I mean, there is a trend that one can find where there seems to be a, a downturn in a certain group, a certain level of producing things that surround one of our primary loci for understanding the faith. There are many different directions we can take this, but I think right away, the first thing that comes to mind is, is just, first and foremost, there are people out there who are doing very interesting things. There are artists out there and architects out there who are trying very, very hard to make things that are beautiful, make things that are innovative, make things that are interesting, use new media. So I'm not entirely sure or we can blame it on a dearth of artists. I think the people we have to blame are ourselves. We've really cut the creation of art out of kind of the core and the heart of what we do as a church. And, and just as another little sort of side door that I would open, it, this is something a friend of mine told me. It wasn't in, in relation to church art, but I find that it it is a reflection that helps me every single time I'm head scratching about things that the church does. And um, he said to me that church catches the diseases of this world. It's not immune to the diseases of this world. And, and I think your point there about the graphics of the synod, your point there about this kind of attempting to keep up with the Joneses and contemporary art and failing, I think that is a very good reflection of a church that has caught this secularist line in art. It wants to kind of look cool and keep up with the cool kids. And I find that those who have succumbed to this particular illness, if you will, seem to have turned their back on the immunity, which is understanding that you know we the church holds truth, the church holds tradition. The church is unique. We have a vision that is unique and sort of a lack of trust in what, what we can bring forth from our own bosom of our faith and our perspective, and instead trying to borrow the trappings and the exterior slickness of the world around us. I don't think it's very successful. I don't think people feel more drawn to the church because they see a logo that looks like something that could be on Twitter or Facebook or, or worse yet, you know, some sort of you know, hotel chain. I don't think people feel more comforted by poor art, a cheap art, an art that doesn't reflect beauty, an art that sort of denies transcendence. I think it just becomes something that people pass over and don't pay the attention to. So I think we are unfortunately not using all of the tools at our disposal to draw souls to the truth. Well, I'm wondering what a successful Christian art would look like. Because during the Middle Ages and during the Renaissance, the relationship between the church and the artistic community was so strong. And by the time of the Renaissance, the two were innovating together, secular and sacred. Before that, it was mainly sacred. But it was very clear on which resources the church could draw, which theological imaginations it was stimulating. The church was really in the driving seat. Now you have... In most Western countries, way less than 10% of people going to church. Christianity is not part of our, the theological imagination of the general population. And I think that the hierarchy of the church has fallen into the wrong hands, very unimaginative, very safe 
middle managers. You know, some, some of them have sort of privately good taste in art and music, but they don't want to rock the boat when it comes to commissions of the church. So I'm just wondering what, in your opinion, successful Christian art and architecture might look like. I think this is a multi-pronged problem. One is a more significant formation of artists. So when we talk about this great moment of revival in the period of the Counter-Reformation or the Catholic Restoration in the late 16th century, we see a period where uh, after the Renaissance, artists really sort of take off independently. And you have a lot of artists who begin to, as the entire world gets turned upside down by the Protestant Reformation, many artists just sort of move into a direction of really their own skill, their own vision, their own. And, and there is, there is in, a, in a lesser way, I mean, obviously, secularism is not as prevalent as it is today, obviously. But there is a moment when artists really begin to lose focus on whether or not they're they're assisting the church or they're really just you know showing off their very clever and personal ideas and their interpretations. The way that was addressed was um, through two very important clerics after the Council of Trent. And one was Charles Borromeo, who uh, wrote about the design of churches. And he was really trying to give some instructions and ideas about the design of churches. And I think that is one very, very important thing because especially in our world today, where is it that people learn about the faith? You don't learn about it in the street. You don't live the feast days. You don't see processions. So the place where we understand the sacraments, these extraordinary connections we have with the transcendent and the divine through baptism, through, through the Eucharist, it takes place in this, in, in, in pretty much in this single locus. We need to go back to thinking about not just artists and not just architects, but really the faithful themselves need to start thinking about what is this building for? Is this building for concerts? Is this building for me to be bored? Is this building for me to have a cry room? Or, this? or is this building to bring people together to be with God? And so I, I think one thing is to go back to why, why do we build churches? What do we want from a church? What do we expect from a church? Is it really supposed to be about sort of a, a soundstage for inclusiveness? I'll sit together in a bleacher or are we being led someplace? So I think on one hand, we could think a little bit more about what our fundamental structures, where people encounter the sacraments looks like. The second uh, prelate who worked on worked with artists was a man named Cardinal Gabriele Pagliotti, and he was friends with Charles Borromeo. And uh, Gabriele Pagliotti wrote in wrote a treatise addressed to artists, and what he was doing was sharing some reflections. It's called the Discourse Over Sacred and Profane Images, and he's trying to help artists to navigate their way between what is something that is appropriate for a sacred setting. And what is profane? What is something that's, that leads to vanity, that leads to distraction? And that even art can easily lead one into a distraction that, that will eventually bring to sin. So I think one thing we do, we need is a little bit more formation for our artists, but also for our public, our consumers of, of art, because I think that has really left by, by, by the wayside. So that would be kind of one way that a new type of Christian or Catholic art would start to look. Isn't part of the problem, though, that the church itself is rather fractured? I mean, when I think of 
my parents' generation and slightly younger people born, a lot of them are dead now, you know, between the late 1920s and 1950, let's say, they had an idea after the Second Vatican Council of the sacred, which really wasn't the sacred as our generation might recognise it, or younger generations might recognise it. So in other words, it was very much based around the intimate. It was partly based around the celebration of the Mass as communal meal, and the architecture reflected that. And one of the results of that was that the architecture of the church, or the furnishings of the church, came to resemble the furnishings of almost an ordinary domestic house, or sometimes a, you know, a, a local government office, in that people didn't want to make church too churchy. And you know, there was necessarily sometimes a little gang of people embodying the spirit of Vatican II who really don't want splendor, mystery. If they want mysticism, it's of, a, it's of a particular variety. And then you have a younger generation who are attracted to the older liturgies and have, if you like, more old-fashioned ideas of beauty and aesthetics. And I'm not sure the two are talking to each other. Well, I think I think you do find in the younger generation those who are so they are uh, convinced they've been convinced of this sort of simplicity and the church is supposed to be simple. I'd like to put forward to you a little thought that I've had. I I listen to my students. I have them do a debate on the pros and cons of church decoration, and I, I'm always hearing about you know the art is distracting, the art is expensive, and the art is too much, and, and I keep thinking. Um, you know, the church started in these domestic churches where they just put little cheap frescoes on the wall. We can find a few traces of them. They had these teeny little, you know, things that they could do because they couldn't make them very expensive. And it was very simple. And the second, the second, the second that they were able to build churches, they started to pull out all the stops and they started to use the mosaics and they started to think about how to transform the space, which had originally been a fairly simple didactic space. They had to accommodate a house as best they could because it was illegal. They were sitting there desperately trying to teach each other the faith by putting up the essential messages. Here's Jonah, here's Abraham, here's Noah. And then when we could, we started to point to this glory, the glory of the church. It's so that we learn about the faith so that we understand that we are all meant to partake in glory. And I'm a little concerned about what I'm beginning to perceive as a kind of hubris that we don't need this kind of storytelling art. We don't need beauty anymore because we've got it all figured out, but we don't have it all figured out. I mean, my job is taking people to the Vatican to tell them biblical stories. The guy with the, with the child on an altar and a knife is Abraham. This is something that everybody knew up into our own age. And so I'm beginning to think that this sort of peculiar pride that we have as, as art-consuming Catholic Christians, that you know, we can make this simple because we don't need this kind of transcendent or splendor or didactic stuff. It seems to have brought us to our knees where we have a generation of young people who understand zero about our sacraments, zero about our story. That's true, but I, I do want to ask you this. Those young people who go to Mass tend to be, I think it's the consternation of the Begolian camp followers, tend to be more traditional, tend to want to have traditional-looking churches and traditional liturgies. Now, they are a tiny proportion of the Catholic world, but a only a tiny proportion of the Catholic world goes to Mass every Sunday anyway. 
this insistence on simplicity is something I associate with a slightly older generation, or am I wrong? No, I think you have it in the younger generation too. I mean, I think the ringleaders of the people who continue to uh, commission, I mean, that's still the generation that commissions church decoration, right? So you still have, first of all, the, the congregation and the people in the pews and the people running the churches are definitely, you know, our gray haired generation. But I think they've sufficiently indoctrinated a critical mass of, of young people. So we have a lot, a lot of young people who think that uh, church decoration is superfluous. But I do agree with you entirely that that same group of young people feel that going to church is a very optional thing. These are the same students who, you know, don't go to church, claim to be Catholic, but they, they don't really observe very much. So, uh, but but that little group, that that little group of people, that that core, that remnant, that, that new spark, in their case, what I would say is required now is much more of a Catholic patronage. I mean, this is something that I say a lot about when I'm with people who, who want to bring back beauty. So there are all of these really wonderful little pockets. Uh, you know, I was with this Fra, this Angelico project in Cincinnati trying to bring back beauty. Catholic Art Institute in Chicago, there are a lot of people who are working on this. But what really that looks like more people patronizing art, more people choosing to put images that speak to them spiritually, speak to them in the light of the faith in front of them and in public and around them. We do have uh, a lot of people who would like to commission art, but it's always, what is the church going to do about it? What is the church going to commission? And here's the problem. Our churches are not really designed for a great deal of art anymore. The, the, we don't really have side chapels, which is where we used to see when we come to Europe. No, and people come to Europe and they look in the churches. You go to these side chapels where you see all of these people who endowed. I mean, where, where do we see Caravaggio's art? Caravaggio's art is not sitting on the main altar of a church, except in Naples, but Caravaggio's paintings were made for side chapels. There was a great deal of this kind of individual expression of beauty in these churches and these side chapels. We don't have that anymore. So we are going to need to figure out a way to get our visual message across. And one way to start is just within the home and within the family. I mean, the images that we put in our houses, the images that we grow up with, the images that we share with our friends when we invite them over, that speaks about us and who we are. And I think a very good way to help new artists, to help create a new a new interest in beauty would be to have these uh, have have art in one's house, have art in one's public places that speak to one's faith, one's beliefs, one's sense of transcendence, one's sense of you know what what truly makes us children of God. That's a fascinating idea, and along with that, I, I guess you'd need to create a sort of marketplace in it. You'd have to create a place where patrons, maybe on a small scale, maybe not spending an awful lot of money, could meet and inspire the artists. Absolutely. And, and I think with patrons, potential patrons, the tastes that evolve. I mean, it always happens in art. There are fads in art. There are fads in contemporary art. We can see a certain kind of design happening, but we don't have enough critical mass of production and patronage of, of Catholic art, or Christian art, to see that happening. But when an artist sees that an art that is figurative is something that is more successful, that people 
praise and enjoy and hold up artists making something that's figurative or something that's more narrative, you begin to see the other gra- the other artists gravitate in that direction. I mean, this was what made the Renaissance. It was competition that made the re- Renaissance. It was it was these great, you know, Caravaggio versus the Caracci, Michelangelo versus Raphael, and in their lesser forms with other artists, kind of a constant sense of trying to bring one's A game to art. But going back to the very beginning, there was I, there was one little thing that was eluding me, and it just came to me. We are. A suffering one other rather terrible thing that happened to the history of art. It didn't happen in our parents' generation. It happened in the 19th century when we bought the line that art must be free. And that this idea that an artist should never be, whatever comes out of the artist's little mind is, you know, exactly what art is. And there's no, there should be no constraint to art. There should be no curtailing of art that somehow to do that is a stifling, it's censorship. We, we use every possible problematic term imaginable. But when we think of the number of paintings by Caravaggio that were rejected, when we think of Michelangelo who wanted to do one thing and ended up having to do the other thing, when we think about the rules of painting that men like Raphael had to follow or men like Leonardo da Vinci were trying to stretch to their limits, that's where you really get genius. You do not get genius as far as I'm concerned by just saying anything goes and just make me something, honey, and I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. I think the genius is when you give them, this is what we need in the frame. And how can you make this break out of the frame? That's such an exciting idea, Liz. I mean, there are so many art students in art schools looking for commissions probably unused to the idea that a Christian might say, I want to convey this or that message, and will you, will you please do it? And I'll pay you quite well for it, but will you please do it? So it's a way of really kickstarting that process, isn't it? It is. I think there's several modern artists. I mean, they wouldn't be modern anymore. They're, they're, they're so long ago, they would fall into the heading of, I guess, old masters. But there are two artists that I find very, very, very fascinating um, one is Matisse, extremely late in life, late, late in life conversion, trying yeah. to put together his chapel, the Rosary Chapel in in Vence, and the fact that he is, you know, at seventy years old, he's not going to be, you know, becoming a scripture scholar. But what he can apply to that chapel, which is very, very beautiful, the sort of stylized use of color. He's an expert in color, right? And so when he creates that space, he creates a space where the colors intermingle to create the colors that we associate with the liturgy. He removes red, removing the colors of the passions and all the things that have led him astray. He has a very, very interesting way of applying what he does to something that is clearly imbued with a man who's refound faith. Then we have Salvador Dali, who, you know, started out the surrealist, the child of Freud, this, this, I mean, the last person you would ever expect ever to be able, you would expect Picasso to be able to fall in line with the work of Christian art before Dali. Yeah. But Dali during his time here has, has another tremendous conversion in the 1940s. And he's really fascinated by this new, again, sort of surrealist concept when he's making his atomic art. But then he gets caught up in the idea of the mystics and the visions of the mystics and how the vision, how the mystics perceive things. And he produces amazing religious art. It may not be to everyone's taste, but it is really, really amazing way of channeling, you know, his skills and his, what fascinates him about Catholicism 
into something that is is striking and really at times quite beautiful. So it, there is there there are ways of doing this. There is hope. Ooh. It doesn't all have to look like Raphael. Maybe we could mention Andy Warhol. Came increasingly devoted to his Catholic faith and look at his Last Judgment paintings. I think they're extraordinary. All three lose the backing of their primary patrons and their base when they start getting involved in religious art. And that's where, you know, Catholics and Christians have to be ready to step up because there is a real pushback from the secular world. Picasso, he was he was implacable in his hatred of Matisse's religious work. Dali lost his base, as did Warhol when they started thinking about religious work. It's a tricky road to take. And so artists have to be accompanied along that road. Dr. Liz and I have been such a pleasure. Thank you so much.